Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, a couple of things before I forget. Um, <clears throat> our lost and found bin back there is getting quite full. A lot of people are missing coffee mugs. That's a lot of what it is back there, but that's not all. So you should check back there if you are missing things, or soon we will find places for your lost things. Um, so just check it out. It's right back. It's in a bin under that back table back there. <clears throat> also, um, uh, if you are able to help with the playground build, I know they've already announced the time, but we need people to to show up uh, when they've said they've volunteered so that Jason, Jason did not tell me to say this. Is Jason Covert even in here? Okay, good. Jason Covert has done a lot of work on this playground. Um, David Hauser's been here a lot. Uh, Ryan McClellan's been here a lot, but there's been a lot of work done by Jason by himself. I helped drag some poles with him because um, that's the extent of my skills. Um, Friday evening, and he had done like four of those by himself before then just dragging those telephone poles, and I don't know how he did it. So if you can come in any of those times that, that he described, please, um, we, can, we, can, we can use the help. Because that block party is coming. We want to make sure the playground is here um, when the party is here. So if you can help us, please, I'd really appreciate it. And Jason would, would appreciate it. Um, can you? Good. Great. Thank you for putting those times back up there. Um, <clears throat> also, I just wanted to, to say thank you to, to everybody, to this church. I didn't know that this thing was going to happen this month. Where people were going to talk about me before church started. If you're new to our church, this is not a normal thing. It's not like an instituted weekly thing where people come and talk about me. Um, uh, it does feel like, it did feel like I was 17 when I became pastor of this church, um, uh, at best. And um, I, I was talking to my sister about it because she was here visiting. And um, I, say, I told her, I'm still waiting for the time when I feel like I'm good at this. And um, eight years in, I'm still not there. When I first started, when I was 26, I felt like... Um, I was just waiting for everybody to figure out that I was a fraud, that I didn't know what I was doing. And I asked other pastor friends a few years ago when this would stop feeling this way, and they said never. So um, that's pretty much where I live all the time, and I really do appreciate your encouragement. I like I, I meet lots of other pastors because of our presbytery. I meet them, you know, three times a year. And I do feel like I've got a job that any of them would love to, to trade for. I mean, I love this church, and I love um, this place. I love this valley. I love who we're called to. And um, I feel remarkably, incredibly privileged to be here. So I appreciate you. That's what I'm saying. Um, also, Ryan is probably one of the best parts of me. So Ellen is right on that. Good call. Probably throw Aaron on the list and all my other children. Um, this morning we're going to be in a, a few different passages. Um, so you can flip along with me 
or you can read on the screen or both. Um, we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew, the end of chapter 27, and then we'll be in Romans 6, and then in the book of Psalms. Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, referring to Jesus. After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then in Romans 6, starting at verse 3, if you've been present for baptisms here at Valley Hope, you, you will have heard this quite a few times. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And finally, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We ask, God, that you would give us ears to hear it, and that our eyes would be open to see you. We ask that our hearts would be soft. We ask that you would speak your word, not just in the hearing of our physical ears, but that you would speak it to our hearts, and that we would be changed and transformed, continuing to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus. To the glory of God. Amen. This morning, if you, if you couldn't tell, we are at the portion of the Apostles' Creed where we're proclaiming that Christ uh, was crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, and then was resurrected, and He ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. He was resurrected and ascended. And... We opened this morning with this reading of the Gospel of Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection, this story of the people uh, who opposed Jesus, fearing that the body would be stolen, and trying to do everything they can to keep him in there to make sure that this story doesn't go out, this prediction isn't fulfilled, that he's raised again. And of course, they're not able to stop Jesus They're not able to seal the tomb strong enough. And in fact, when the angel comes and the tomb is cracked open, Jesus is already gone. So it it didn't work. It's not like in that moment the tomb is cracked open and then Jesus runs out. He's already gone. He's not there anymore. And they didn't even know it. It's the manifestation of what's already happened, that he's been resurrected. And the, the disciples hear the word through these women, hear the word of Jesus' resurrection, And then after that, the part that we didn't read is the end of the Gospel of Matthew is this great commission. And then we know Jesus ascends into heaven, this very strange thing that happens. I was just reading it again this morning in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples are there gathered around after this period of time with Jesus, 50 days 40 days, and he he ascends, he goes into the heavens, and they're standing there looking up, and the angels appear and say, why are you staring into heaven? Because he just floated up. I mean, what are we supposed to do? He just went up there, and they tell him, tell them all, one day he's coming back the same way that he left. And Paul's reflection then in, in the book of Romans is for us, what happened Why did this happen? What does it mean that Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended? What does it mean for us? And it's vital for us, this piece of the story, both of these elements, that he was both resurrected and ascended. It matters to us personally, individually, And at its face, the resurrection has always been the thing about Christianity that seems the most ridiculous. 
It is the resurrection that causes the Greeks in the book of Acts to mock Jesus' disciples. For their, their reason was, there is no way that given the choice between ascending to some spiritual reality and coming back in the flesh, that anybody, much less a God, would choose to be in the flesh. So they were tracking with the disciples' story all the way into the part where they said, then he was resurrected and enfleshed still further, where they were like, okay, now I'm out. This is ridiculous. No way any God, any person would want that. The whole goal of the thing is to escape your flesh. But of course, in our day, this is also the point where people come and scoff and say, I'm done with the story, because our response is just, people don't come back from the dead. That is preposterous. Surely they mean something different than he physically walked out of the grave. Surely this is just some sort of spiritual metaphor because dead people don't come to life. And the, the sort of quiet thinking is people a long time ago were stupid and they didn't understand this, but now we, with the internet, understand that dead people stay dead. I need to inform you something about human history. We've always known that dead people stay dead. That's not a new discovery. We are not so smart that we have finally figured this out. Everybody already believed this. That's why the disciples are shocked. They don't see the resurrected Lord Jesus and say, I knew it. This is exactly what I thought was going to happen. Jesus is now alive again, of course. No, they're locked in a room weeping because it's all over. They're depressed because he's dead, and dead people don't come alive again. They also are rational people who don't believe that anything is going to happen to the corpse of Jesus except decomposition, and that there, there is Jesus. They are just as surprised by the events of Easter as we are, and Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, a passage that we'll come to soon is very clear that we are not making a spiritual metaphor or parable or story out of the events of Easter. It is vital and important that we are very clear Jesus bodily walked out of the tomb. And Paul says, if this didn't happen, if the resurrection does not happen, we should all just go home. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't a physical, bodily event, then Christians are fools that should be pitied. That's what he says. So for Paul, for the early church, the resurrection of Jesus is the hinge point of the whole story. It is what transforms Jesus' story from the story of a, a kind, wise teacher who is crushed by an evil empire of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories, to being the singular story of the whole world. When Jesus is crucified and buried, He is just like lots of other people. He's good. He's a great teacher. A good man. But if he dies and stays dead, if his resurrection is merely a metaphor, then Jesus is not really different than almost anyone else in human history. 
But if the resurrection is true, and if it happens physically, bodily, in history, Paul says, everything is entirely different. Whole new vistas of experience and truth and reality and even human history is reordered in this dramatic and surprising way. And this is why for the New, the New Testament church, for the early church, the resurrection is the mark of a new kind of human history. There, there is one strand of human history that is going on, and in Jesus' resurrection, a new stream of history begins. So Jesus' resurrection happens on the first day of the week, on Sunday. But in many ways, Christians talk about Jesus' resurrection as the eighth day. As this new event that happens, not of the beginning of the same old week, but a new week is happening. A new kind of week is created. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you walk past that baptismal font, it is in the shape of an octagon. Christian baptismals throughout history are often in the shape of octagons, to tell the people who are baptized either in them or by the waters in them that something happens on this eighth day that dramatically reorients human history so that then we are baptized into Jesus, into the events that come out of this eighth day, you are joined to a different kind of story What Paul is saying in Romans 6 is when Jesus is crucified, you are crucified with Him. And when He is resurrected, you are surely resurrected with Him. On the cross, Jesus dies the death of His people so that when He rises, His people live His life. Jesus scoops up all of our humanity So that our humanity that's been riddled with sin and death can die and be resurrected in a strange and new and unexpected way. And it's important that the story doesn't just stop there, that this weird thing, the ascension, happens. It's important. It's vital to what we believe. And Jesus Himself tells us this. He tells us, it is better for you if I go. It is better for you if I leave. This is his leaving. This is the thing that he says is better. Why? Why is it better that he leaves? Because this resurrected, victorious Jesus is forever in his body. He is enfleshed forever. So when Jesus is not ascended, he is walking around Israel And if you want to go meet him, you better fly to Israel and go find him. Unless he does this thing. By his ascension, by him sitting at the right hand of the Father, you can be found by him and meet him wherever you are. So now his travels with his people are not confined to finding him in Galilee like he tells his disciples in Matthew 28. 
Now Jesus somehow, by the presence of His Holy Spirit, is in the Swananoa Valley. Jesus of Nazareth doesn't live in Nazareth anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father forever. So His Holy Spirit is with His people forever, wherever they go. So when Jesus promises His disciples at the end of Matthew 28, go to the ends of the earth, and He promises them, I will never leave you or forsake you. He really meant it. And so that He could fulfill that promise, He ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father. His ascension is not Jesus' abandonment of His people. It is the fulfillment of His promise to be forever with His people. So you and I now, when we confess that Jesus has been crucified, buried, descended, resurrected, and ascended, and glorified, we are saying that God Himself has joined Himself to His people now and forever. That there is no place that you can go. No place in the journey of your life, both geographically or spiritually, that Jesus has not been or cannot go. And there is no place where Jesus has not asserted His Lordship, His Kingship, His supremacy. He stands in triumph, standing victorious over all of our life. Foot in the grave and trampling on the grave. Foot out of the grave and standing on this place as this risen King. And what is beautiful about Jesus' ascension as our resurrected, not some spiritual, disembodied, ghostly presence, but as our resurrected Lord Jesus who we can touch and feel and grasp onto is that somehow our humanity has been carried into the very presence of God forever. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest forever. Jesus, who is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in absolute unity with the Father and the Spirit, has carried our humanity into the very life of the Trinity itself. The people of Israel had this understanding of the priesthood. Where they, they expected and understood that they would live their lives and repeatedly fall in and out of states of cleanliness and uncleanliness, holiness and unholiness. And one day a year, the Day of Atonement, the priest of Israel would be a mediator between God who was so holy that they could not come close to Him. So they had to have one person to go in between and one day a year, that great high priest would make atonement, would kill a goat and spread its blood over the altar, confess the sins of Israel and send another goat, the scapegoat, into the wilderness and would go and represent Israel before the face of God at the Ark of the Covenant. One day a year. And guess what? The day it ended. And no more was that priest allowed to go back into the Holy of Holies 
before the Ark of the Covenant, humanity could not stand before God except that one day a year. And it is not because God was not willing, God was not wanting. This whole thing, this one day that existed and previously did not exist, this whole thing was God's idea because He wanted His people to be close to Him. This whole thing was His idea. And He took that model of that one day a year activity. And in the language of Psalms 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And He said to His people effectively, what you have seen in the Old Testament as a shadow now you have the better fulfillment of. Because the high priest doesn't carry your humanity one day a year. Who you are as people gets to be represented with Him now and forever, every day. Every day, the great high priest stands in the holiest of holies, the great throne room of God, and represents us forever. And this day doesn't end. The Day of Atonement doesn't end now for us. The great high priest is in there for us forever. And somehow our story is joined even now into the very life of God. This is miraculous. And this is why Paul says, if this thing doesn't happen, then we should all go home then it's all worthless. It's all nonsensical. If the great creator king of the universe does not trample over death and sin and carry us close to him forever, then what are we even doing? I was talking with my daughter this week about what do we believe compared to what other people believe and who they pray to and we pray to, how we live our lives, it's supposed to be different. But there's nice people everywhere under all kinds of different religions and faiths. What is it that makes us different? And ultimately, it all comes down to Jesus. Ultimately, it comes all the way down to the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we will never come to this church on a Sunday and hear the message that as long as you are loving and kind, that's all that matters. Because everybody everywhere is trying to be loving and kind. We would be no different than anyone else. The thing that we confess is that the thing that matters centrally and most importantly is the person and the work of Jesus. All our hopes rest on Him. The whole story pivots and turns around Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, made incarnate by the Holy Spirit, who lived a sinless life and did what we could not do who carried our humanity down through the grave and initiated a new kind of history where people could finally, finally live with God forever. No ups and downs based on my proficiency. 
No ups and downs based on how I feel. But anchored forever and securely because of what he did for me. And Jesus in his resurrection and his ascension has raised himself up in victory. Now we, we are caught between two kinds of history. We are caught in the moment where we confess what we cannot see. When our hopes are pinned to what we cannot touch. And we look in hope. And many of us are still caught in the war of this world. Pulled in our guts between a world that hinges on us and a kind of history that hinges on Jesus. And we lived in this buffeted and battered place. And it is hard. It is hard to carry sorrow and death and suffering. This morning, I'm not standing up here and telling you, if you trust this, if you do the right thing, then your life will be easy. That all the things that weigh you down and pierce you, they can be resolved in three easy steps and a quick prayer. Because our God is still the one who was crucified. And we are his people. What I'm telling you is the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, ascension of Jesus is how you endure those things. And that God will one day bring relief to all your sorrow. That it will surely happen as surely as the crucifixion of Jesus happened. As surely as the cross was planted into the ground of history, so your redemption will be worked out concretely in history. As surely as you are suffering in your body, the risen body of Jesus tells you that your body will be healed one day. As surely as death comes, even for us, so surely will your death and mine be finally defeated by the one who has died with and for us. All of the things that you can name and put in your backpack of sorrows, this man of sorrows has taken upon himself and will surely overcome. I was reading this week in this series of lectures on the Apostles' Creed by Karl Barth, a theologian from early in the 20th century. And I wanted to read this section. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the claim is made, according to the New Testament, that God's victory in man's favor in the person of His Son has already been won. Easter is indeed the great pledge of our hope, but simultaneously this future is already present in the Easter message. It is the proclamation of a victory already won. The war is at an end, even though here and there troops are still shooting because they've not heard anything yet about the capitulation. The game is won, even though the player can still play a few further moves. 
Indeed, he's already checkmated. The clock has run down, even though the pendulum still swings a few times this way and then that. It is in the interim space that we are living. The old is past. Behold, it has all become new. The Easter message tells us that our enemies, sin, the curse, and death are beaten. Ultimately, they can no longer start mischief. They still behave as though the game were not decided, the battle not fought. We must still reckon with them, but fundamentally, we must cease to fear them anymore. If you have heard the Easter message, you can no longer run around with a tragic face and lead the humorless existence of a man who has no hope. One thing still holds, and only this one thing is really serious. The Jesus is the victor. This morning, Jesus is victorious. And if you have come in here holding on to the hope that rests in yourself, you are carrying the weight of hopelessness. Because you can feel in yourself the frailty that tells you the truth. You cannot win the day. And this morning, you are being invited to capitulate, to surrender to the victorious Lord Jesus, who has been where you have been and who has been where you are going and will carry you to the right hand of the Father forever. And if this morning you know that and you believe that, you may have been living under the rule, living under the influence of a kingdom that does not believe that. And so you are tired and you are weary and you are broken down this morning. Before you is the hope of the gospel. You have been hearing and carrying things that are only maybe partially true at best. But what is fully true is Jesus. He reigns victoriously over the darkness of your sin, the darkness of death, the darkness of suffering, and has established himself and shown himself to be supreme. He has reigned. He has ruled. He will rule now and forever. So this morning, take heart. Take up hope again. Because the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Because of Jesus, you are never forgotten. You are never cast aside. The shadow of death itself is not so dark that it will consume you. But instead, your great good shepherd will be beside you and lead you all the way through the valley to the other side. This morning, it is all about Jesus. Will you see him and will you respond to him this morning in trust? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, but this morning, would you look at Jesus and say, I trust you. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for all that you have done for us in the person of Jesus that you have given us your life. 
that you have trampled over our death and given us your life, that you so love your people that you would take up all the suffering and sorrow and sin and death that is ours. You would embrace it willingly in exchange for bringing us close to you. And Father, I pray that you would comfort us in the victory of Jesus. For all those who are worn down by the suffering of this world, would they hear loudly and clearly Jesus' promise to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has never come to trust you. For any kind of reason, Pray that you would quiet the storm of doubt and opposition in their heart and in their mind. And that Jesus, you would step forward and present yourself. You would say to them clearly, I am the resurrection and the life. Father, I pray for all of those who are trapped in the grips of death. that you would speak that word loudly and clearly to them. You are the resurrection and the life. We thank you that you are a great high priest, that every day, every moment, you stand in the holiest place and carry us there with you. Let us by habit come to you boldly, securely, knowing that on the other side of the door is a father who wants his children to come in. We thank you for the greatness of your love, O oh God. Help us to respond with our whole life. We love you, and yet our love is but a pale flicker compared to the blazing glory of your own love. Thank you. Amen.